Welcome to the Not Old Better Show on radio and podcast. I'm Paul Vogelsang, and we've got another great show as part of our Smithsonian Associates Art of Living author interview series. Thank you so much for listening today. We have got a great guest today, as I say. I'll introduce her in just a moment, but quickly, if you missed any episodes last week or the week before, our 656th episode <laughs> was available. And we talked to Peter Alagona about his new book, Accidental Ecosystem, a great interview about the rise in animals living in urban America. Two weeks ago, I spoke with Dr. Chantel Pratt about how we're wired and the human brain's adventure for each of us. If you've missed those shows or any others, you can go back and check them out along with my entire backlog of shows, all available free for you on our website, notold-better.com. And if you leave a review, we'll read it at the end of each show. So leave reviews on Apple Podcasts for us. Thank you. Like I said, we have a great show today as part of our Smithsonian Associates program. We're going to be talking with Kathy Kleiman. Kathy Kleiman is an author, an educator, an attorney who's written the new book, Proving Ground, the untold story of the six women who programmed the world's first modern computer. It's an amazing story. I didn't know anything about this, but we will learn a lot more. Kathy Kleiman will be appearing at Smithsonian Associates coming up, so check out our show notes for details and more information. After the end of World War II, top-secret research continued across the United States as engineers and programmers rushed to complete their confidential assignments. Among them, were six pioneering women tasked with figuring out how to program the new electronic numerical integrator and computer known as ENIAC. The world's first general-purpose programmable all-electronic computer, ENIAC, was built to calculate a single ballistic trajectory for the Department of Defense, and they were able to do that in 20 seconds rather than the 40 hours it took to have a human hand involved. But there were no instruction codes or programmable languages in existence to guide these women, and they succeeded. But their story was never told to the reporters and scientists fascinated by the huge computer after it became public, and their story was lost. Friends asked me in junior high school if I wanted to learn to program computers, and I said yes. So I joined an explorer post, a co-ed branch of the Boy Scouts dedicated to career exploration, and went off to spend my Wednesday nights at Western Electric, a manufacturing arm of AT&T near my home in Columbus, Ohio. I learned BASIC, a programming language invented at Dartmouth in the 1960s. Soon I was playing games my friends wrote and adding one of my own, a version of Mad Libs that I wrote in BASIC. The first time my friends played it and laughed out loud at the funny story the computer printed, I knew I was hooked on programming. Looking at the old black and white picture and the men and women standing before ENIAC, I longed to know more about their story. I dug deeper, found more books, and uncovered more fo- uncovered another photograph. This one was a close-up showing two young women standing right in front of ENIAC. Once again, no names of the women, only the name of the computer. I made copies of both pictures and took them to my professor. Anthony Ottinger was a former president of the Association for Computing Machinery, an international group for computing professionals. I showed him the two photographs. Who are the women? I asked. I don't know, Professor Ottinger answered, but I know who might. He told me to visit Dr. Gwen Bell, co-founder of the Computer Museum, then in Boston and now in Silicon Valley. The Computer Museum was at the far end of Museum Wharf 
in downtown Boston. As I walked down the long wharf, I noticed the Children's Museum and in the water, the Boston Tea Party ships. All great to visit, but I was on a different mission as I clutched my folder of photographs and disappeared into the computer museum. I found my way to the office of the museum's director. Belle was in her early 50s with short, dark graying hair, clearly no-nonsense busy person. I opened my folder and once again found myself pointing to the black and white images of the women who were in front of ENIAC. Who are the women? I asked Belle. Unlike Professor Ottinger, she knew. They're refrigerator ladies, she said. What's a refrigerator lady, I asked, baffled as to what she was talking about. They're models, she responded, rolling her eyes. Like the Frigidaire models of the 1950s who opened the doors of the new refrigerators with a flourish in black and white TV commercials, these women were just posed in front of any act to make it look good. At least that's what Dr. Bell thought. She closed my folder and handed it back to me. I was dismissed. I slowly walked out of the museum. I saw the children lined up on the wharf ready to enter the Children's Museum, the Boston Tea Party ships rocking in the harbor, and the bright blue sky. But Belle's story didn't make sense to me. I had stood in front of big computers before. The first time you see them, they seem huge, overwhelming, almost surreal. The young, woman, the young women in the ENIAC pictures look confident and assured. They looked like they knew exactly what this huge computer did and why they were in the photos. They did appear posed, but so did the men, and the men were not models. As I left the wharf, I set a task for myself. I was going to find out the names of the women. I would learn what they had done in order to be in those beautiful black and white pictures of ENIAC in the 1940s. I was going to learn their story. That, of course, is our guest today, author Kathy Kleiman, reading from her new book, Proving Ground, the untold story of six women who programmed the world's first modern computer. Join me and Kathy Kleiman as we talk about all these women programmers, the campaign to restore these women to their rightful place as technological revolutionaries, and Kathy Kleiman shares why the ENIAC programmer's groundbreaking work still deserves to be celebrated. Welcome to the Not Old Better Show, Smithsonian Associate Series on radio and podcast author, Kathy Kleiman. Kathy Kleiman, welcome to the program. Paul, I'm so happy to be here with you. Thanks. I, You know, I'm smiling right now, Kathy Kleiman, because I, this is this is a subject that I think is really going to thrill our audience. I personally enjoyed it. Thank you so much for sending your book, Proving Ground, the untold story of the six women who programmed the world's first modern computer. Congratulations on the book. You're going to be speaking at the upcoming Smithsonian Associates uh, program soon. Why don't we just start there again? Congratulations, welcome, and tell us a little bit about your upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation and how you're going to engage our audience with all the cool things there is to talk about with regard to this book. (laughs) Thank you so much, and I'm excited about the upcoming speech on Wednesday evening because I get to tell the story of six of my favorite people in the world, the six women who program the world's first general-purpose programmable all-electronic computer. And that sounds really fancy and, and a little abstract, but really... What it is, is a computer named ENIAC, Electronic Numerical Integrator Computer, which they called ENIAC. And um, it's the trunk of the modern computing tree. ENIAC is the great-great-grandfather, or maybe we should say grandmother, of modern computing, of uh, the smartphones that that we have in our pockets and and the laptops on our desks. And um, 
So it's fun to be able to tell the story, first to research and write the story and then tell the story of the young women and young men who were on the ENIAC team, the men largely building the ENIAC and the women largely programming it. And what brought them all together in kind of the crucible of World War II and a very special mm-hmm. army need. Yeah, I honestly, I had no idea about the um, the closeness with which this tied to the military and uh, computer development and all of this being intertwined with military history. I wonder if you tell us about the role of the military in the lives of these six women, these ENIAC programmers, and then maybe tell us what happened to computing in general, how it transformed itself after these women played this just significant role. Well, that's a question that really spans seven decades. Yeah. So let's take let's take uh, the first piece of it and maybe come back to the next piece if we might. So um, during World War II, we know the standard story of the home front that were taught in school, which is absolutely right. It's just incomplete. So I was taught that the men go off to war during World War II uh, after the United States enters the war, which is of course partly through the war, after Pearl Harbor, we enter the war. And um, the men go off to war and the women are recruited into the factories and farms and really urged to go and work because we need, we're converting our factories so that they, they produce not cars, but tanks. And we need to harvest you know, the food so that it can go off both to the population and to the soldiers. Um, so, so women are needed. What I did not know was how women were recruited into STEM. And there's, and only by sitting there in the the Library of Congress in front of this microfiche machine reading the Philadelphia papers day after day going through the 1940s, um, did did I see how many efforts there are to bring women with any type of science, engineering, uh, technology, and math background into the positions that were just as open as others. And this is a story of the Army needing people to calculate ballistics trajectories. Ballistic trajectories are a differential calculus equation for the path of a missile leaving the muzzle of a cannon or large artillery, like a howitzer, to hit the target. And at the time, medium and long-range howitzers were running about 8 to 14 miles. And at those distances, weather has a big, big impact on the arc of the trajectory. So during World War I, um, a brilliant mathematician had come up with an equation. And if you put in the numbers for exactly one type of cannon with one type of missile for one set of weather conditions and one location, one target that you're trying to hit, and you crank it through. And not only was this a differential calculus equation, it was graduate level numerical analysis techniques of the day. Um, Then you could very accurately actually get the result, which was the angle at which to set the cannon to shoot it and hit that target. And American artillery became frighteningly accurate with what were the firing tables generated by the army. But of course, you don't know what the weather conditions are ahead of time. And guess what? It took about 30 to 40 hours to calculate one trajectory, one set of weather conditions. They, of course, needed lots of them to put into something called firing tables so you could look up variations of these, which meant the, the, the army was 
basically out of mathematicians right at the beginning of the U.S. entry to the war. And they went out in, in early 42 and started recruiting women. Um, and they went looking for math majors, which was exciting for the women who had majored in math in college, because before that, the traditional jobs we think of that math majors and math major graduates would take, like actuary and accountant, were male jobs. They were on the male help wanted side. We used to have different classified ads, male help wanted and women help wanted. And so uh, Kay McNulty, later Kay McNulty Mockley, would um, told me the story because I got to know her. And so she told me the story about two weeks after graduation in 42. She's reading the newspaper looking for a job and she sees an article saying the the army was looking for women math majors. And she calls the other two women in her class. Another uh, one already has a job has just gotten a job and another uh, does come with her for the interview. And they are hired on the spot and they become computers for the army calculating these ballistics trajectories. And yet even a few years later, when the army has hired, from what we can gather between 80 and 100 women, and they're working two shifts a day, one group working days, one group uh, working nights, and then every two weeks they shift, at 30 to 40 hours per trajectory, it's still pretty, it, it, it's not coming along fast enough. And the military, the army, agrees to fund a very, very, very experimental computer that no one except its inventors really think is going to work. And it does. And when this eight foot tall, 80 foot long computer is, um, is operational right right at the end of the war the army assigns six of the computers to program the ENIAC which is kind of fun because there's no programming manuals there's no programming languages they don't even have the security clearance to enter the room uh, so they're given wiring diagrams and a slightly more abstracted thing called a logical diagram and they're, they're told to kind of figure out how the ENIAC works and then figure out how to make it do that differential calculus equation and that's this is the story I tell in the book of how they how they figure that out um, let me stop there because that's a really long answer that's a it's a great answer it's it's so inspirational and I know you personally are a technologist you're an attorney you, you do a lot of things and I wonder in the kind of the timeline how did you first learn of the story were you involved deeply in technology and then learned of the story did the story prompt you and inspire you to pursue technology how, how did that all come together I learned of the story well I learned pieces of it over time. But initially, I, I stumbled across it. So, um, as you said, I, I, I do a few things, and that started early. I was um, a social and political theory major in college. But when I went to college, my mother gave me the, the sound advice. She said, study anything you want, study anything you like, but computing is where the jobs are going to be. And she was right, of course. And I had been fortunate, and we'll talk about it a little later, I think, in, in some reading, uh, to have started programming before STEM, before other things. But I started programming computers when I was in junior high school. And so when I went to college, I had some, some extra credits, and I started taking programming right away. And then I became teaching assistant in programming. And um, 
So by the time I got to my junior year, I'd been programming, I don't know, five or six years. And I had only heard of two women in computing. One is, uh, you know, both very famous, both, you know, tremendous histories. But one was Lady Ada Lovelace, who worked with Charles Babbage in the 19th century and really came up with some of the conceptual foundations of communicating with a computer, communicating a human problem with the computer, kind of the essence of, of the modern programming concept. And the other was then Captain Grace Hopper. She would retire as Rear Admiral Grace Hopper in the Navy. And she was in the 20th century and famous for involvement in COBOL, the first cross-platform language, and a number of other things in programming. But I had only heard of two women in computing, one per century. That did not make me feel warm and fuzzy about my experiences, you know, about the opportunities that would exist for me in computing. And especially as I was going up to senior levels of computer classes and finding that there were very few, if any, women in those classes. And so I actually went looking. I took an American Women's History seminar and I went looking for women in computing. And I found pictures. You have to be pretty desperate to spend a lot of time on pictures. Um, but I found these pictures of ENIAC. And the pictures emphasize the size that we were talking about, eight feet tall, 80 feet long, um, this huge new you know, computer uh, dwarfing the people in it. But what got my attention was the people in it were both men and women. And um, some of the men were identified, particularly the two co-inventors of ENIAC, Dr. John Mockley and a young engineer named Jay Presbert Eckert. Um, but the women were not in the pictures, but the women were in a number of ENIAC pictures that I found. And so it made me really wonder who they were. And that's how the story, that's how my involvement in the story started, was all the way back in my undergraduate years. Hi, it's Paul. Do you love entertaining, informative, eclectic, insightful programs about culture, health, science, life, and everything Smithsonian? As part of our Smithsonian Associates interview series on radio and podcast, we're introducing you to the new Smithsonian Associates streaming series. Smithsonian, a nonprofit organization, is excited to present this new aspect of their 55 years as the world's largest museum-based educational program. Join us from the comfort of your home as we periodically interview Smithsonian Associate guest speakers. Our audience here on radio and podcast can explore our website for more information, links, and details at notold-better.com. Thanks, everybody. We are with Kathy Kleiman. Kathy Kleiman is author of the excellent new book, Proving Ground, the untold story of the six women who programmed the world's first modern computer. Kathy Kleiman will be presenting at Smithsonian Associates coming up. The title of Kathy Kleiman's presentation is The ENIAC Programmers, the Women Behind the First Modern Computer. We'll put links up to where our audience can find out more information about Kathy Kleiman, all of the great things that she's doing, her work, and her new book. But we have Kathy Kleiman today. Kathy Kleiman is also the founder of the ENIAC Programmers Project. I love that organization, Kathy Kleiman, <laughs> because to me, I, I really, I, I'm, I'm not a programmer, but I have to do all my own technology. You know, I, I have to do all my own editing. I have to do all of my own posting. All the things that go into my work, I, I kind of do myself, and so I really appreciate. Uh, a, a technology story. <laughs> and as I said earlier, I missed this completely. And I, in my research of you, I found that 
you really felt like this story was lost, and you kind of referenced this in in the uh, mention of the the want ads. There was a gender, a male want ads, and a women, you know, oriented want ad section. Most male written histories of this invention of ENIAC omitted the role of these women. Why was that? Why was the story lost? Mm, what an excellent question. And this is one of the things we, we will explore um, towards the end of my speech on, on Wednesday. Um, because it's, you know, I don't know for sure is the short answer. But what what I do know is that this is not uh, a question of hidden figures. Um, I love that title. I love that mm, story. Mm-hmm. NASA win. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it reminded me a little bit of hidden figures. I have been right. Around. I mean, from the perspective of the public, yes, the, these are hidden yes. figures. Mm-hmm. Right. From the perspective right. of their team, they're not at all. This was a small team. And in the book, I describe how, you know, initially the women are not allowed in the room. They don't have the clearance to enter this top secret military room. Eventually, they have to be giving clearance or they can't do their work. Um, they do get into the ENIAC room. Then, you know, they do have to prove themselves a bit. And, and we, we talk about that, which is true of anyone walking into any computer project of any sort then and now. But they do. And Jean will tell us, Jean Jennings Bardick, one of the ENIAC programmers, you know, tells us, um, she told me personally, because I interviewed her, um, and she wrote in her book, that that the women were treated with a great deal of respect. They became very respected, very well-liked members of the ENIAC team. So the men that they worked with knew their story and knew their contributions. Somehow, these contributions get lost over time. Um Maybe one of the most gentle explanations would be that the men were obsessed with hardware for many, many years, Uh, you know, big hardware Um, and who gets credit for it. And they spent a lot of time, in fact, the rest of their lives, in some cases, fighting over who should get credit for the hardware, which may have helped stomp out any kind of story about what I consider to be the more interesting question, which is, how did you communicate with this enormous, very odd, unusual computer? And how did you program it? And that turns out to be a question only the women could give me the answers for. Now, maybe, you know, some of the men could have, but it was the women who told me their stories in great depth of how they learned the the unique units of ENIAC, each one doing something separate, the high-speed multiplier uh, obviously doing what what is his name to do, the square root divider, the 20 accumulators that could add, subtract, and store numbers. And then how in the world they, they figured out how to create a flow chart, they called them pedaling sheets, to keep track of the many logical lines of their the steps of their program, how they learned to think not in the way they would working with mechanical desktop calculators, which they had done for years calculating during the war to calculate the ballistics trajectories by hand, but how to kind of think in the steps ENIAC could handle, which is much more rudimentary, and and break down this differential calculus equation into these very small incremental logical steps ENIAC could handle. And then goodness help us, they had to go in and actually wire it onto the computer. Um, yeah. 
<laughs> so every digit, like if you had two numbers that you're going to add in an accumulator, you actually physically had to wrap those two numbers with these thick digit wires, or they could go on something called a digit tray, which could handle 10 digits at a time. But you had to wrap those two numbers into the accumulator, set the switch that said you're adding and not subtracting at that particular point, and then bring in a program pulse, kind of a, a big start uh, pulse to um, start the accumulator at that particular step in the program to add those two numbers. And then you have to decide whether the accumulator is going to store the sum or take it to someplace else immediately for another part of the operation, you know, another calculation. Um, Thomas Petzinger, who wrote two articles about the ENIAC programmers in 1996, called the women the operating mm -hmm. system mm -hmm. of the ENIAC. And yeah. I love, mm -hmm. love that. Um, but another thing that happened was that, for whatever reason, some historians, and I'm afraid this exists today too, some historians thought that the only thing the women did was wire the computer, that they didn't understand what was going on, that uh, they, they, they couldn't possibly possibly understand what, what they were doing. Uh, they were just executing someone else's ideas, which is why I included a chapter called Parallel Programming <laughs> Just for Them to show just not only were they doing basic programming, they were doing parallel programming, which is one of the hardest kinds of programming then and, and today. The book is just fantastic. Again, Kathy Kleiman's new book is Proving Ground, the untold story of the six women who programmed the world's first modern computer. I, I have the book here in my hand. Thank you again, Kathy Kleiman, for sharing it with me. The photos in the book are just fantastic. They're beautiful. Many are black and white. There is one that is color, and I, I, I'd like you to describe it. It's the one, it, it's called the decode counter with vacuum tubes. I think it's Gene Jennings Bartik and Kay McNulty are ho actually holding that particular uh, computer uh, item uh, aloft. But it's also in recognition of Gene. There's some real powerful uh, accolades that have come since first doing this work. And I wonder if you just give us some context into that, into that photograph and what that really represents. I want to encourage our audience to go buy this book, look at these photos, but maybe tell us about this one image. Sure, I'd be happy to. So I want to circle back to something you mentioned, which was the ENIAC Programmers Project, which I founded so that we would have a nonprofit, a place for finding the ENIAC Programmers because we had to find them. Uh, and then researching what they did so that we could record oral histories and then later to celebrate what they did. And we, of course, didn't do this by ourselves. They were nominated for the Women in Technology International Hall of Fame, all six ENIAC programmers, by Jean Jenning Bardick's son, one of the women, you know, the woman that you're pointing to in this picture, by his son. And I, I wrote the speech because there was no real history of what they had done. But I was with them in 1997 when they were inducted into the Hall of Fame, and it was marvelous. Um, so we wanted to celebrate, but I believe it was just after that, that um, one of Jean's cousins, of, you know, several, you know, second or third cousins, she comes from a farm family in Missouri, and they all went to college. Uh, her, they went to uh, a nearby teacher's college, now Northwest Missouri State University. But not only did her sisters and her brothers go, her mother and her father went and her, her grandparents went, grandmother and grandfather, which is great. Um, so a long history of education, in this farm family. And so one of the cousins who I believe was 
well, she was an alum of Northwest Missouri State University, kind of banged on the door and said, do you know what my cousin did? Did you know what your graduate did during during World War II? And um, Northwest Missouri State University, particularly somebody there named John, John Rickman, uh, just thought this was an incredible story to share with their students. Jean became a commencement speaker um, uh, and, and rode with, in a Model T with the president in the commencement parade, I believe. And she um, was also profiled in the uh, Northwest Alumni Magazine. And the picture that we're talking about has Jean and Kay McNaughty-Mockley, and they're in their late 70s, early 80s, and they are holding up this decade counter, as you said, with vacuum tubes sticking out. So vacuum <laughs> right. tubes are like these elongated light bulbs. There's, there's, a, more, <laughs> there's a more sophisticated uh, description in the book. Oh, you're doing a great job because <laughs> it is a really interesting photo, especially associated with computers. And vacuum tubes were the electronics component of the day. Then it would go on to transistors and then semiconductors. But vacuum tubes were what you were stuck with in the day if you wanted something that was all electronic. But they were fast. Unfortunately, they were also pretty unreliable. And leading technologists and scientists of the day told the Army not to fund the ENIAC because they didn't believe that 18,000 vacuum tubes would ever be able to work at the same time for longer than a few seconds. Fortunately, J. Presper Eckert, kind of the lead engineer on the project, who's, who's 23 when they pitched the project to the Army and 24, he turns 24 the day they get the contract, is too young to know that what he's doing is impossible. And so he creates ways to check the quality of the vacuum tubes, and then they build in, and that's what you see here, is this decade counter, um, which will become a major component of the back of the machine, the hardware of the machine, um, with, this has got to be about, I don't know, what, um, a dozen vacuum tubes, so just a small number mm -hmm. of the 18,000 that they will have, mm. um, and uh, they um, they allowed Kay and Jean for the Northwest uh, Alumni Magazine to hold this part of the ENIAC and um, and and smile. It's it's one of you know there there aren't all that many pieces left of the ENIAC, and it's yeah. it's a way of of not just telling the story but showing the story uh, of this incredible invention. The women, I should note, would never have been allowed to touch a vacuum tube. That was the back of the machine, and they worked on the programming interface, which was on the front of the machine. But I guess you know, sixty years later, they're allowed to hold some vacuum tubes. <laughs> <laughs> I love that image. <laughs> that's that's a great story. Thank. Thank you so much for telling us about that photograph. Well, the book, Proving Ground, is really getting these excellent reviews. And you've really touched on many of the accomplishments. But if, if you had to distill it down into one, what would you say is the most significant accomplishment of, the, of these pioneering women? Because I, I just I was so inspired. You talked about STEM. There are many, many things that have come from this, including the ENIAC Programmers Project. But Maybe tell us what you feel like is the is the greatest accomplishment. I think the greatest accomplishment they had was being ready to do things no one had ever done before. And we've in in the documentary that I produced called The Computers, a 20-minute documentary short, we have each of them talking about why it was so much fun 
to program ENIAC and do things no one had ever done before. Betty Holberton said it was like a cross between being an architect and a construction engineer, I think she said. They all just light up at knowing that they were on the cutting edge, knowing they were doing things no one had ever done before, um, and knowing that they were part of a team that was that would make history if everything worked. Um, and that their, their work, but also their excitement about their work inspired me. You know, I was wondering again, whether a woman could go into tech and not only did I go into tech, I was lucky enough to be one of the first people, not even women, one of the first people in internet law. And when I would walk in these rooms of almost all men, I would think about the ENIAC programmers and I would think, you know, it's really fun to be at the cutting edge. Just to be in the room is an, is, is an incredible honor and great fun. And I have every right to be here. And they felt they had every right to be there. They, they were doing something important to the war effort. And soon they realized that it was important to, you know, history and engineering and technology too. And they celebrated it then and they celebrated it when they talked to me decades later and I watched them celebrate with women at Women in Technology International and, and other groups and they would light up and the young women would light up and I just think it's important that we know who our pioneers are and those pioneers were both women and men and the, these NEX6 were just incredible uh, programming pioneers, incredible people and um, if they can inspire others, uh, I thought it was very important to, to share their story. Well, you've done a great job sharing the story and talking with us. Really, Kathy Kleiman, congratulations again on so much for, especially though, for removing these barriers and reversing some of the stereotypes around technology and really kind of opening doors for everyone to explore STEM and all of the computing technology that is going on today. But thank you for joining us again. Kathy Kleiman, author of the new book, Proving Ground, The Untold Story of the Six Women Who Programmed the World's First Modern Computer. It's been our guest. We'll be at Smithsonian Associates. We're going to put links up to where our audience can find out more information about Kathy's upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation, as well as the documentary that Kathy produced and all of her other work at ENIAC Programmers Project. You can become a sponsor there. Check it out. Look at the show notes today for more information. But Kathy Kleiman, thanks so much for your generous time and for generously reading for us today, too, from your book. Paul, thank you so much for having me and for allowing me to share this uh, story of these incredible women. Thank you. Thanks so much for our guest today, Kathy Kleiman, author of the new book, Proving Ground, the untold story of six women who programmed the world's first modern computer. Kathy Kleiman will be appearing at the Smithsonian Associates. Please check out our show notes for more details. I mentioned that I'm going to read some of these wonderful reviews we've been getting lately. And this one is from Mr. Clever. Mr. Clever says, a much-needed podcast. So glad to have found this podcast with so many podcasts for 20-somethings. It's nice to find one for people who are 50-plus. If you're looking to create a better life for yourself, you will really love this. Great host and great info. Paul is a very personable host. That is a pleasure to listen to. Wow. Okay, Mr. Clever, thank you. You get read. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so thanks, Mr. Clever. And please leave your feedback, which I will read here on the show. Thanks as well to our wonderful Smithsonian team for all they do to support the show. Thanks to you, our equally wonderful audience. Please be safe. 
And I emphasize this issue of safety because we all need to be safe and safer by eliminating assault rifles. Assault rifles should only be in the hands of the military. They are killing our children and grandchildren in the very place that they learn, school. Please, let's do better by eliminating assault rifles. Let's talk about better. The Not Old Better Show. Thanks, everybody, and I'll see you next week. We'll be right back.